At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, you are in for a treat, whether you're just looking for some encouragement whether you're looking to be challenged that maybe it's not too late, that you're not too old, that you're not too poor, that you're not too rich, that you're not too far gone to make a difference through your life, whether you feel like your life is out of balance or filled with too many challenges, or you're trying to be maybe a little bit too perfect and that's beginning to weigh you down a little bit. This message today is, I promise you, for you. Our guest name is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. She is a clinical psychologist. She's the author and the host of the Self Work Podcast, and it focuses on helping others lead healthier mental and emotional lives. And it's so much more than that. Today, Dr. Margaret shares how in living through her lost decade, not just lost weekend or month or year, it was a missed decade for her, taught her resilience, taught her hope, and the transformational power in being more transparent with one another. Known for coining the term perfectly hidden depression, Dr. Margaret's also going to share how to break free from the cage of perfectionism and quiet our critical inner voice. My friends, this conversation is more than about leading a healthy mental and emotional life. This is ultimately about embracing the profound gift of life in all of its shades, regardless of where you find yourself living that life today. You're going to love this one. So grab your favorite Live Inspired journal. Grab something to sip on during this conversation. Get ready to take some notes and get ready to be moved by my friend and soon to be yours. Her name is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Margaret, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much, John. I'm more than delighted to be here. Well, I already feel like I have a friend seated next to me. So th this is terrific. Right. If I introduced you ahead of time with this long bio of why our friends ought to be excited about today's program. But if you were to introduce yourself, mm. I, I'm, I'm Margaret. What, what do you follow up with? Margaret, what do you do? What do I do? I do what I love. I love being a therapist, but I also... I was a professional musician in my 20s, and I was a vocalist, and I loved that. I have been so blessed to do with my life more than one thing that I have just thoroughly been fulfilled by and been uh, excited by and challenged by. And 
you know, I started a podcast when I was 62 years old and I laughed that my book came out right before I started receiving social security checks. <laughs> so, you know, it's a life that I have uh, been very honored and lucky to live. And so I'm, I couldn't be more happy to be here. And so what I do is, man, I'm curious and I thrive on learning and being challenged and always looking for something, you know, not new necessarily, but that is going to fit me and that I can give to it and receive from it. What I love about the intro you just gave yourself is you really said almost nothing about what you currently do professionally. And you also said very little about how topsy-turvy the road has been to get you here. Oh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to going on this wild ride with our friends. They've already buckled up in preparation for it because they know it's going to be a seatbelt type journey. So let's just roll right into it. Where did you grow up? I grew up down in Southern Arkansas, was the daughter of a funeral director, and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. She was your typical 1950s. Well, I won't say what my psychiatrist friend says about the 50s women because they were, they had a tough life, not really necessarily because of... I mean, they were white and, and, you know, blessed and all that kind of stuff. But women at that day had this very formulaic way of being. And my mother slid right into that. And and she suffered because of that a lot. But mm. so I was the daughter. I was kind of a sickly kid. I got into music because I had to leave uh, school every day, go home and rest. And so I would practice piano and then I would sing. I grew up in this very traditional Southern atmosphere. My mother wanted me to be a debutante. And I said, mother, I don't want to be a, I was adopting more the 1970s, you know, Gloria Steinem and all that stuff, which she hated. But I went to a very liberal college and that changed my whole life. And I knew something was wrong in our culture because it was so racist. And I knew that. And I did what I could as a child about that. I look back on that now and wish I'd done more. My parents also, my dad was one of the leaders in our community for integration. Mm. And I was very proud of him for that. So I grew up in that, in that atmosphere. I'm glad things are changing. I've in, in my lifetime, things have changed and um, I, I think they need to keep on changing. But anyway, that's, that's kind of who I am and where I grew up. Your father, you mentioned was the funeral director. Yeah. I was the digger's daughter. <laughs> yep. One of my clients last year and again this year and has been for the last five years is funeral directors life insurance. Uh, and I've grown to not only love those folks, but to love our funeral directors. The The work they do is done quietly and humbly and in the shadows and usually overlooked and uh, underappreciated. And as much as it is difficult for them, I've also found it's incredibly difficult for their families. Uh, it's a hard job and you're on 24 seven and Christmas is not necessarily a holiday for you. So what, what was yeah. it like for you growing up the digger's daughter? Well, we didn't take many vacations. My dad was very dedicated. It was a family business. He was the third generation to do this. And then my brother did it. And I have a nephew now who's doing it. And I will tell you that his father died when he was 15. And I've read the newspaper account of his funeral and they said people were lined up in the streets for my grandfather and I will say about my own father that it was in 2007 and our church was full and there were people outside listening to him he was very beloved he was a very kind gentle person and 
I think I learned from him. I know I learned from him that giving back is so important. And he was very active in the community. So I learned a lot from him. And yet it was interesting, John, because I also grew up around the reality of death. And it's, it's not a very fun topic, but, you know, we heard about people dying. I, I worked at the funeral home during the summers and that kind of thing. So I grew up in an environment where that that sort of conversation or that awareness was always there. Yeah. And my dad was really funny and, you know, lighthearted and playful. And so he wasn't always this, you know, austere or quiet funeral director, but he, he was definitely a man to be reckoned with and in many ways. He knew about people. He knew what he cared about. He knew his values and he lived them. I saw that growing up. So then what was it about seeing that and growing up deciding that you did not want to become a debutante, no. that you wanted to path your own journey forward, that you realized you wanted to go off to college and study French? Yes. Well, I actually wanted to study music, but my parents weren't in charge and weren't in favor of that. They did not want me to be a musician, and uh, even though I would have been a church musician if they'd let me get a music degree. So that's why I chose French, um, which, of course, has done me very little good in my lifetime, except maybe get me into some trouble. By my early 20s, I had come back from living a, a year in Europe, which was another one of their designs that kind of didn't work. I decided I wanted to be a professional vocalist, but I wasn't good enough to be an opera person. I had studied classical music. And I went to the Aspen Music School, and I realized there standing that I, I knew my arias and I knew my pieces in the opera, but real opera stars or opera people who were going to make it knew everybody else's roles, too. <laughs> and I went, wait a minute. And so I went back to the North Texas, as it was called then, I think it's the University of North Texas. And I got in the jazz singers and because I could reach the high notes, I think, actually, because I couldn't sing jazz at the time. And that led me into jingle singing. And so I made my living as a jingle singer for about six, seven, eight years. And then I started, I was in a couple of bands. I was a horrible horrible rock and roll singer but I did jazz pretty well and so I had my own group it was called Vivant a, a nod to my French um, yes. history and so it was a very interesting way to live but the lifestyle was not kind to me addictions ran in my family and it was just not something I was handling very well and I recognized that to some extent finally which was life-changing actually hmm. And it was a chaotic decade. I married twice and divorced twice. And so those years were really chaotic. But what, what they have taught me, in fact, I'll tell you something funny my dad used to say. He would call me and he'd say, how's your practice going, Margaret? And I'd say, you know, Dad, knock on wood, it's going pretty well. He'd kind of lean back and he'd say, well, there aren't too many mistakes you haven't made in your life. <laughs> so there's not too much you can't understand. And I said, you're right, Dad, you're exactly right. So, you know, it, it has stood me in good stead, all that experience of, of making mistakes and having to forgive myself for them and move on. And that has taught me a lot about humility as well mm. as just courage. You said it was a, a difficult decade. And yeah. I, I think it's easy to say those words and talk about you got married twice, divorced twice, and, mm. and then we just move on. Without recognizing how agonizingly painful that time period must have been. And just from knowing your story to the degree that I do, you also struggled with anorexia. 
I did. You struggle with body image. You struggle with anxiety. You struggle I with did. addiction, uh-huh. a relationship with alcohol, all of that. relationships all of that. With, with husbands. The people that met me then, if they knew that I was a therapist now, they'd go, excuse me, Margaret Robinson Rutherford. You know, So you're right. I, I don't say that blithely. It was very difficult. I got hurt. I hurt other people. My parents went through hell and back, just watching me sort of deteriorate. I had a way of lying to myself about it and denying it and trying to be both people. That's really why the panic disorder started, because I had this secretive, dark, darker existence in Dallas. And then I would go to Pine Bluff, my hometown, and I would act like everything was fine. And the shame of that was just creeping up on me and making it very, very difficult to keep myself stable. And so you're right. I looked at some dangerous kinds of things to to help me escape from that. So finally, when I got into, I mean, lo and behold, I get into, well, I went into music therapy first because I was sort mm-hmm. of um and so I thought, well, let me go do, let me go in this direction. And then music therapy led me into clinical psychology. And by damn, I got into a really good program. And I was told later by a secretary in the program, she said, they let you in out of curiosity. Here was this jingle. I mean, I had a band gig the night, an orchestra gig that night. I was fronting an orchestra the night that I did my uh, interview and I said, Oh, I can't have a glass of wine. I need to go work. Right. Uh, And I was such a curiosity. They let me in. So it's been incredibly, it took me nine years. I was my last, one of my last gigs in Dallas was at the Fairmont hotel singing in the lounge there. I'm not going to make you go back to the lounge, but I'm always intrigued (laughs) by jingles. Oh, Whether yeah. it's for a roofing company, car company, shoe manufacturer, I think there's just radio something. IDs, WXYN, you know. That's all I was going to ask you. <laughs> Looking back on that illustrious career as a decade long jingle singer, what's one that still you sometimes find yourself just singing in the shower? Well, I don't sing them in the shower, but I did do the Your Southwest Airlines home. Just say when I did that. <laughs> there you go. Shout out to my friends from Southwest Airlines. There you go. commercial from the past. I mean, a lot of the businesses were very Dallas oriented. Fox Photo and uh, well, TJ Maxx has become national. I was the TJ Maxx girl one year, but it was a very interesting business to go to, to be in because a lot of the studios that I worked for actually did mostly radio IDs or you would basically your voice would be on a on a tape that they would sell and then they had to hire the same people to come in and just drop in the name of the company right so you have this sort of generic insurance uh jingle and you have an in, in a generic restaurant jingle and then you drop the names in so it was pretty right. steady business because you know they would sell a lot and we'd have to come but it was Great. Here were these nine people in the room. You were this, you were put a piece of music was put in front of you. You, you were expected to read it perfectly the first time. You don't make mistakes. You sing perfectly in tune. Uh, You don't sing louder or softer than anybody else. Um, And it was very challenging, but I adored it. I mean, it was that part of the singing was a lot of fun. As I am a bit of a perfectionist myself, it was a very perfectionistic career. So, you know, Dr. Phil likes to ask the question, how's that working for you? How's that working? <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask it differently to you. Okay. You had a decade that kind of was lost. 
certainly mm-hmm. spent uh, with some risky behavior and making some mistakes and and feeling a lot of anxiety and panics. Mm-hmm. What changed? I'm in front of you today. You've now been married 30 years. 33. You've impacted patients yeah. around the world now, clients around the world. You've got a best-selling book. You've had a f- profound impact on the heels of a broken decade. So what changed? Great question. What changed? I got tired of being broken, I think. And I looked at the music therapy program at SMU, for example, was my first step toward, wait a minute, I need to get out of this. I could, I didn't like who I was becoming. And now I was married at the time to one of the people that I divorced. And uh, he and I had a very tumultuous relationship. He was definitely emotionally abusive and at times physically abusive, but I was not my best self either for certainly. I mean, I would fight back and not physically, but I would argue back and it was not, not pretty at all. And so I got into the music therapy program and I felt like, okay, wait a minute, something's changing. This is another thing. I decided I want to use the part of myself that I have not used. I loved to sing but I also loved to affect people's lives in a positive way. And I found that out when I volunteered at the women's shelter in Dallas. I thought, this is not a part of me that I've ever used. And so that's what led me to music therapy. And then I got into grad school, John. And frankly, a lot of the things that my second ex-husband had been saying to me that were very cruel, things like, you better stick with me because if someone knew who you really were, you'd not, you'd be rejected. You wouldn't be loved. And I believed him. And so I stuck with him for seven years, but I got into that environment and it was as if I discovered I was smart. I discovered I was funny. I discovered I was likable. And it was like this fresh, just this window opened in this very dark space And he did me a great favor by getting enraged with me, which he often did. And I came home one day and he was gone. And I cried and, and, you know, got frantic and all the things that I knew to do over the last seven years of that relationship. And then he wanted to come back. And I said, you know, I'm not sure. (laughs) I really attribute a lot of that growth and a lot of that sense of hope and change to those volunteer experiences to the program at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and my will and luck again to become more of the person that I'd always thought I would be and I you use the terms my lost years they were very lost so that's my responsibility I don't blame that on anyone but me I thought I was in control, but I was very out of control. Mm. Well, you begin to get back into control. You move out to Fayetteville. You begin your practice, and you're going to let those lost decade kind of just fade into uh, well, into the shadows. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I, one of my favorite authors, I love him so much. I have a picture of him hanging up in my office, Henry Nowen. He's got a book out called The Wounded Healer, and you become a wounded healer. You, you become someone who allows their brokenness to 
redeem and work through the struggles that others are facing in real time. Would you, would you share the, the, the very first time, because you moved up to Fayetteville committed to never talking about your past. That's exactly right. Well, you've done but, your homework. I did do my homework, <laughs> but, but you do talk about your past with, with one of your clients. What, what happened? I had told my therapist in in Dallas, I, I just will let people believe that my third husband is my first. I'm not going to lie about it, but if they, if they just, Oh, how long ago? Oh, we've been together a long time, you know, whatever. But there was a woman sitting across from me and she said, she was crying and she said, well, I'm about to get my second divorce and that's why I'm crying. And she, then she looked up and she goes, but you wouldn't understand that. And I looked at her and I swallowed hard. And I said, you're about to join a club I have been a member of for a long time. And tears welled up in her eyes. Tears welled up probably in my eyes as well. And we had this moment. And then I realized, wait a minute. I want to live the kind of life. I want to be open about my vulnerabilities. I had read Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now by Maya Angelou. And in it, there is an essay where she talks about, she had one like person of the week or something in New York. And she and her friends went to this pub and she got absolutely smashed. And she strode over to a table, sat down, and this husky, blurry, drunk voice asked the guys at the table why people didn't love her and why she wasn't feminine enough. And her friends pulled her up, you know, and go, come on, Maya, let's go. And she said, it's one of those times when you really wish you could move to Canada and change your last name. But I read that and I thought, here's the poet laureate of the United States talking about this very shameful part of her life. And she does it. She just does it. And I thought, that's who I want to be. I want to emulate that. I have to say, I took small steps toward that. Hmm. Yes, I admitted my divorces gradually. I, But when I started social media, I gulped hard and thought, well, do I want to put out this out in the world? It's one thing for some of my patients to know or some of my friends in Northwest Arkansas to know or my, my Dallas friends knew. But, um, I, yeah, I do. Hmm. I'm going to say I have panic disorder. I still I have I actually have performance anxiety. So I'm handling this pretty well. Um, so far, so good. So far, so good. You never know what's going to the next <laughs> month is going to bring ever, ever, ever. Um, but I really started doing that. I, I began to say, I, I want to talk my, talk about my history of anorexia and my still anorexia and my still struggles with body image. Um, those, those don't go away. Um, right. and like I said, the panic is still apart. So it, it's, um, it's been what I've tried to do. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to realize, like my dad said, that I can use my experiences to, to understand people and to help them work through their own shame. Mm. I mean, I, I think when you come in sick in any fashion and someone is able to put their arm around you and say, me too. Oh yeah. It allows you so courageously to take a deep breath and to take the next right step forward. So for you to do that for that lady years ago and for you to do it with other leaders going forward and us today on the podcast, it's awesome. Uh, that's one individual you had an impact on. There are countless. Another one was named Natalie. That's right. It's where you begin the book. It's, I think you maybe gave a TED talk where you referenced Natalie. Would, would you tell our listeners and viewers about Natalie? 
Sure. Natalie was a patient of mine who came in and she kind of kind of came in bright and bubbly and she was uh let me see I've called her several different professions because I don't say her real profession. I think I said she was a CPA or something like that. But she was having some problems at work and she said there'd been some emotional abuse in her home, but she kind of laughed because oh, you know, that was in the past and doesn't bother me too much now, but she was anxious and having some panic at work. And that's why she came in. So I gave her the diagnosis of anxiety and some mild depression because she did have some symptoms of that several months later. And also she brought in her husband for a couple of sessions because they were arguing about some stuff. Um, he, he, my pager went off. This is how long ago this was. Right. My pager went off and it was her husband. And he said, you know, I've got this strange feeling. Natalie called me and asked me to pick up the kids when I got back home. And he was about four hours away. And she, she asked me to, you know, I said, pick up the kids. And, but there was something in her voice. He goes, did, do you know about anything, you know, that might could be happening? And I said, no, not really. And he said, I'm about to ask you something really strange, but would you go and check on her? Now, John, I had never done that before. <laughs> I've never done that since, but my mm. gut said, I've got to go do this. So I jumped, I knew where they lived. He gave me some information about their house. I pulled up, nothing looked amiss. I knocked on the door, nothing, but he'd give me the garage code. So I went in and here was this perfect looking house. And you could tell the dishes had just been washed. And so there was a little dishwashing liquid smell in the air. Everything would look quiet. And I began calling her name nothing. And so feeling kind of like a burglar, I kept on walking and calling her name and going down this hall. Well, she was in at the end of that hall in their bedroom and she had tried to take her own life by drinking a bottle of vodka and downing a bunch of pills. So I called paramedics. They came, they rushed her out. And I sat there, John, and just said, I, I mean, I felt like it was my fault. I felt like I, I had missed something. Right. I had no idea she was suicidal. I wish I could say that it was right then and there. <laughs> I thought, oh, I need to write a book about this, but I didn't. I mean, but I did tuck away the information, obviously. She, by the way, is doing just great. That's who Natalie was. And it changed something in me. I began listening to people differently. I became more aware of what they were not telling me. And I started listening more for what people weren't saying or topics they weren't mentioning because it became really important to me. I, I hope I learned something then. Mm. You've coined a phrase, perfectly hidden depression. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's tied directly to this woman who has a beautiful life, good husband. They're working on their marriage, but it's kind of normal stuff we all deal with in relationship. Right. Right. Kids, great kitchen. It's even clean in her case. Yeah. Life is awesome. And she attempts to take her own life and no one saw that coming, including you who knew her right. well, or her husband who said the words right. I do to her. So what, what is perfectly hidden depression? And, and maybe more importantly, why does it matter to our listeners? Because it's maybe to some seems like it doesn't matter to me. Well, it matters because the rates of perfectionism are going sky high, are growing at, the, at a huge rate in our culture, in our world, as are suicide rates. And they are coupled. Uh, there's a certain kind of perfectionism that's called socially prescribed perfectionism that I didn't know about until I wrote the book. 
that is all about having to meet expectations of others all the time, kind of like you're on a treadmill and you have no control over the speed or the incline. And it's a very, very pernicious problem because you get told all the time, I wish I had the life you had. How do you manage everything you manage? And yet you're in the shower or when you're alone, you think I am so lonely and no one knows who I am. And it would be just better if I died. So I can't tell you the number of people that I've heard that the, where the term came from was literally, I, I was thinking about Natalie and other people that I had treated because I had started a blog in 2012 and it was 2014. And I thought about some things that really were threads that joined all these people, that there were some threads in their life, um, shame, an inability to talk about, express painful emotions, taking way too much responsibility, not talking about themselves at all, denying and discounting hurt. And I just happened to call it the perfectly hidden depressed person are you one. And the post went viral. I'd never had that happen. I didn't even know what was happening. <laughs> and then I was writing for the Huff Post uh, at that time and they featured it. And I had forgotten, left my email at the bottom. And I literally got hundreds of emails. It's like you're in my head. What are you talking about? And I've been told that, that that particular term, a lot of these people don't realize they've done it for so long. Right. They've adopted this camouflage that of perfectionism, the perfect life, because it is a very workable and successful way of just pushing away all that pain and looking like you don't need help, looking like you've got this life covered. And unfortunately, it can be way too successful. And so I got curious. I found Dr. Brene Brown's work, who I know you've interviewed. And her work was, of course, eloquent and incredible. But I didn't even see in her work that she was correlating these perfectionistic, you know, lack of vulnerability kind of stances and dynamics with suicide. And so, John, I actually have always told people that if you think it exists and it doesn't, then create it. I thought, well, I'm a nobody knows me therapist in Fayetteville, Arkansas, but I'm going to try to write a book. And then things just happened incredibly synergistically. One of my friends who uh, was a blogger friend, I didn't know she worked for an agent. She was actually an acquiring editor for an agent. And he, she got the agent uh, excited about the book. I didn't even have to find an agent. And then it was turned down by 39 publishers. But a Random House, for example, turned it down because they said nobody knew who I was. And they didn't think perfectionistic people would buy a book on depression. Mm. So that's why I started the podcast. I thought, well... I've been in front of a microphone before. <laughs> People tell me they like my voice. So I'm going to start a podcast, see where it goes. And um, that's been a joy and a blessing as well. And just a lot of fun, a challenge, grueling at times, as you, I'm sure you know. But between the podcast and I hope the topic of the book really being something that a lot of people needed to hear, I did get a publisher and that, that was in 2019 with New Harbinger. Mm. What, tell me what the difference between constructive and destructive perfectionism is. It's a very important point to make. 
I got accused when I was first posting things, for example, on Facebook about this perfectly hidden depression stuff. A lot of people wrote me and said, you are pathologizing resilience. You're pathologizing courage. What in the heck are you doing? And I said, no, I'm not. Because you, like you say, constructive perfectionism is a, is a great trait to have. Um, it's about really wanting out of curiosity, out of generosity, out of creativity, out of just this inherent desire to do things well and don't do it if you can't, you know, do your best or whatever. Um, it's those people, but they enjoy the process of it. They can right. make a mistake and go, ah, well, I have to learn from that, I guess. And, but it's much more process oriented, meaning you enjoy what you're doing and while you're doing it. And it's not as much about where you're headed as it is about the journey, as they say. Mm. Destructive perfectionism is not about the journey at all. It's about the achievement because it's not based on those more positive things. It's based on this shame that's inside of your head. You hear these voices, not hallucinatory voices, but voices that say you're never going to amount to anything. People are going to find out that you're a joke. You're only a good, as good as your, your last success. It's pressure, pressure, pressure from these internal voices in your head. That's the huge difference. And it's destructive perfectionism that can cause so many problems. You mentioned earlier, but I'm going to bring it back because I think it's incredibly important. Number one, perfectionism is on the rise. Yes. Social media is not helping us around this. Not at the all. The fact that when we come in looking good and people say, you've never looked better. Yeah. The fact that we raise our hand for everything and people say, aren't you great? Makes yeah. it even more How of a drug. Everything that you handle. Yeah, exactly. You know, but, I've tried to tell people sometimes that I have panic disorder. I have social anxiety and they'll look at me and go, no, you don't. You're the most extroverted person I know. I know how to act extroverted. Right. I may have also taken a little bit of a medication to help me, you know, not look nervous, but I have panic disorder. These people have problems. They have a problem or they may look like they have the perfect life, but they do not because their perfectionism is, it has this tint, it has more than a tinge, um, it's about avoidance of pain and denying pain and mm. denying that, that some of the circumstances in their life were very, very difficult, uh, even traumatic. You mentioned also that as perfectionism rates rise, so does suicide. They are directly correlated. Right. You said they're exactly. coupled. Uh, and then in your TED talk, you mentioned uh, if you haven't met someone yet, you will in the next 12 months. Right. So it seems as if their life is perfectly together. And then you wonder why in the world are they no longer with us? How did they possibly die by suicide? And as you said, those words, I thought back to the last 12 months of my life. And I've lost two friends in the last 12 months due wow. to suicide whose lives were perfect yeah. and who are no longer with us. So it, tell us why this is such a, a true challenge, a cancer that we are dealing with. And what do we begin to do individually and then maybe collectively to redeem it? Well, it's not simple. You know, what I said in my TED talk was that certainly an answer and a very important answer is for us to be transparent, meaning that we tell people and we talk about what our struggles are and we don't try to look and, and, and both in our, in the, in corporations and um, I've been giving a lot of talks to construction workers, construction workers, uh, 1000 of them die accidentally on the job every year, 5,000 of them mm. die by suicide because it is a 
profession that promotes or seems to attract people who are macho and who don't complain and all this kind of thing. And, and yet they're despairing and lonely without anybody knowing it. Um, you know, I got the TEDx opportunity because one of the co-presenters of TEDx Spoke Over Tongue had called or LinkedIn had texted me and said, I've heard one of my friends kill themselves and her husband found your book on her bedside table. I need to know about this perfectly hidden depression. So, and I've uh, sadly been contacted by so many people through these years of with stories just exactly like that. Mm. So you're right. Social media is not helping at all. And it's literally worldwide. Korea, for example, South Korea, there was a bidding war for my book. Now, I'm not trying to say that's great about me. It is how much perfectionism is a part of their culture. Right. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of K-pop stars that have killed themselves. And their right. lives are fantastic. You know, what could be what could be wrong? And yet their suicides are huge over there. So it's a problem. And, and what we can do about it is what you and I are doing right now is by not buying into I must look a certain way. I must let people think this about me. Uh, I'll tell my whole story. And that is very important. You know, I interviewed over 60 people volunteered to talk with me about it. And one was a brain surgeon. One was a motivational speaker. One it was a well-known California advertising exec, graduate students. And I would ask them, why would you risk talking for a couple of hours with some therapist in Arkansas that you do not know and sharing your life details with her? And to a T, they said, because I don't want anybody to live the life that I've lived. I've been so lonely. Nobody knows me. They believe this perfect image that's out there. And I've made it my personal mission, as I sort of said at the very beginning of this interview, that that message become, has become extremely important for me to try to get out as best I can. So and you're when, you, when you are, you know, not on a podcast, but on a couch next to someone who is yeah. a grade A perfectionist, their life is awesome until the lights turn off and then the reality hits the fan. Give me a couple of strategies that you might provide them on how they can alleviate the need to be perfect at everything at the same time, not becoming a slug and uh, living in a nightgown and, you know, gaining 15 pounds per month as they just give up on life. Because it's that blend, man. It's getting that balance just right, living in harmony between grace and excellence. What, what's some advice that you might give to someone who finds himself right now quietly, desperately living a perfectionistic life? I have to help them understand and see that their perfectionism is a problem first. Because it's like their best friend that they've counted on. It's always there. It's always pushes them. It's funny you should use the word slug because I've certainly been a perfectionist in my own life. And I had a therapist one time who asked me, if you took the thumb out of your back, who would, what would you become? I said, a slug. That's exactly <laughs> what I said. And so these people fear giving up. And you have to help them cope with fear. They also think and believe heartily because their history that they will be rejected wholeheartedly if they let people know 
if they even let themselves know that they have had pain and that they're living it out. I love the Terrence Real book. I don't want to talk about it. And in that book, it's for men, but in that book, he uses a, a conversation with one of his own patients where the guy is trying to understand what is wrong if you don't talk about your feelings, you know, especially your painful feelings. And Terry looks at him and says, you know, if you don't feel it, you live it. And that's what people are doing. If you don't feel it, you you act on it. You live it in ways that you don't understand. I, a, lot, a lot of my 20s were that way. Yeah, I, was feel, I wasn't feeling the pain of it. I was living the pain of it. So I think those are the two things that come to mind first. I have to help them understand that even though it's scary to think about changing their perfectionism and building some other skills or tools to handle life, that becomes something they, they are at least willing to take small steps. And second is they literally may not even have words right. for their pain. And so I have to help them find the words and get to those feelings. So years ago, I had the joy of, of hanging out and partying and loving and just visiting with kids as ah. a child. two and a half years or so of doing that. And then I, I hung up the badge because it burned me out. And I'm in my late twenties, had all the energy in the world and could not do the work long-term. Wow. I'm curious, you, you've been doing this 30 years now ish. Mm -hmm. You've had a nice conversation with me, but you've had a lot of hard ones in therapy sessions mm -hmm. day after day after day with people in profoundly difficult situations, weighing their struggles in front of you. And then they leave and then the next one comes in, the next one comes in, the next one comes in, and then you go home. What, what do you personally do to fill the bucket back up? I cook. I love to cook. And I laugh a lot. Being a therapist, people say, how do you hear about all the pain all the time? And I'm not trying to be trite or sound overly, you know, Pollyanna-ish when I say this. But you get to see a lot of courage and a lot of you get to see people delve into, admit, reveal, feel the child within them, what's called inner child work. But they begin to make those connections that can be very powerful of how something that happened to them when they were four or 14 or nine, in your case, how that has affected them and how they might be living that out without recognizing that's what they were doing. And so... You see that. You see it mentally. You see aha moments. You see tears well up in their eyes when they get, oh, wait, I need to have compassion for myself. They, they hate the word compassion. What do you mean, pity? <laughs> no, compassion. And so you have to begin to help them discern where their shame leads them. Maybe that is in exercising two hours a day, maybe that is in drinking, maybe that is in secretly, maybe that is in achieving, 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 wherever it, it particularly it lies. But you, I, it's just, yeah, I get tired. Yeah. My husband knows when I come home with a certain look on my face, he says, okay, you need your 30 minutes. <laughs> and I'll say, yeah, I need my 30 minutes. So, um, do what I need to do. I'll go outside and breathe. Hopefully you don't have that look on your face when you, when you go home after this conversation. With <laughs> I am home. This is my home. <laughs> so I'm just going downstairs. <laughs> when you and I spoke before I hit record and I asked what, when you 
say yes to a podcast like the Live Inspired podcast or when you write a book or when you say yes to Ted or whatever else you're saying yes to when you're about to deliver your work, what do you hope people receive? So as we get ready to move into the Live Inspired 7, seven questions that tether all of our guests together, when people get ready to leave this episode, after hearing your voice and your heart and part of your story and part of your work, what do you hope they know about their story and their life and their future? If they recognize themselves in what I've been talking about, which I think a lot of your listeners will, then there's hope. There, There is, I want to give them hope. They, you know, it is a huge, it is a, I use this word very directly and purposefully in the TED Talk. It is a cage that people live in. And to realize that you could begin very slowly to open the doors of that cage and allow yourself to feel, to be, to connect, in, really connect, to be able to talk about your anger, your fear, your sadness, your joy, your whatever. And, and yet, and you can have people in your life that know how to do that as well and that you connect with it. That's what I want people to walk away from this interview realizing maybe there's a way that I can get out of this cage. Mm. I love that term and hate it, that word cage. Mm -hmm. So uh, my friends, uh, the key is in your hand. Open up the door. Come on outside. I'll, I'm with you. Margaret's with you, too. And let's talk about the joy and the pain and the gift that is your life. Margaret, we have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. Called okay. the Live Inspired Seven. I'm pretty confident you're capable of, of running the gauntlet with me. So here we go. All What's right. been the most influential book you've ever read? A Man's Search for Meaning and um, Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now, those two. By the way, when people ask me this or that questions, I always give them yes and answers. So I appreciate <laughs> that I asked for one and you gave two. Yeah, well, just be glad I didn't give you seven. <laughs> Perfect. What, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in the South that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? My spontaneity. I was very spontaneous. I'm a little more careful now, which probably is somewhat wise, actually. <laughs> but I mean, my mother used to tell me that uh, even as sickly as I was, that I always had to be the person that swung a little harder, higher. I did things. Unfortunately, some of that led to some trouble in my 20s. Sure. <laughs> but I'm not quite as spontaneous as I used to be. And I do miss that a little bit. If your home where you are recording this podcast with me caught fire and all mm. living things are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, what's the one thing you would grab? The $20 bill that my dad handed me one of the last times that he was in a wheelchair and one of the last times I was in their home, our home, he, with help, wheeled himself to the door and he stood up and he pulled out his wallet and he said, now go get some. Now he didn't realize that guests stations had changed, but he said, go see Mr. Melton and get some gas. I still have that $20 bill. I'll never, my husband looked at it one time and goes, aren't you going to spend that? I said, mm -mm, mm -mm. <laughs> that's what I would grab. Oh man. I'm so glad you kept the $20 bill. <laughs> it's the memory behind the $20. Of bill. course. It always is. Uh, 
you know, a few of our guests will say, I, get, I grab my laptop, I grab my credit cards, I'd get the keys for the Rolls Royce, whatever they're grabbing, that's practical, <laughs> but that's fine. I love the answers of the plastic statuettes given by the great grandmother. Yeah. And the, the the wooden cross made out of the baby's furniture and and the $20 bill that my father gave me for the final time that I got to see him stand up and hand me something. That that is just a beautiful gift. When, now the perfectionistic part of me is going, why didn't you say something about your son? Uh, I think you said enough with your father. That that's perfect. Yeah. If you could sit on a bench, whether with your son or anybody else, living or deceased, on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation, who would you like to be seated next to? Mm. My grandfather, Robinson, who I never met. And my dad, it was his father, and I never met him. And my dad used to tell me I was a lot like him. And I've always wanted to meet him and ask him about himself and my dad, actually. So that's who I would want to talk to, my grandfather, Robinson. What's the best advice your grandfather, your son, your dad, or anyone else ever gave you. So the best advice you've ever received is? Don't be scared. My dad had a heart attack when I was 16. And back then, you know, you weren't allowed to be with people. And so, but he purposefully called us all back one at a time. And he looked at me and he said, Margaret, I'm not scared and you should never be scared either. Don't live in fear. Mm -hmm. What advice if Margaret could go back in time just a couple of years and whisper some wisdom to herself at age 20, what advice would you give your, your 20 year old self? I would say to fight harder, to be more assertive about who I knew I really was. Cause that's the roundabout the time I started losing myself. Right. And I would say maybe be a little more independent. Dr. Margaret Rutherford. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Oh, you don't ask easy questions. <laughs> Welcome to my therapy session. Yeah, really. Okay. Mm. She gave of her joy, her caring, and her heart. Mm. Well, Dr. Margaret Rutherford, we thank you for giving of your joy and your caring and your heart and your pain and your lost decade, and your mistakes, and your resolutions, and the grandfather you, you never met, and the wisdom of the father who you did, and everybody else in between. It has been a joy spending this time with you on the podcast. Thank you so much, John. I, I would love to return the favor, so I'd love to have you on self-work. Looking forward to it. So my friends, that is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. Well, my friends, I told you on the front side of the conversation, you were going to love the conversation, the ideas shared, and the person sharing them. Margaret's amazing. And uh, I think leaving this episode, she reminds you of regardless of what you've done, or maybe even where you are right now in your journey, that your best is yet to come. I love conversations with thought leaders that can share practical tips that we can implement and build more meaningful, more robust, more inspired lives. I think we had that kind of conversation today. I also love when these guests are authentic and transparent and vulnerable and funny. And in a moment where Dr. Margaret Rutherford could have lied and said that her third husband was actually her first, just kept going on with a lie. Instead of living in that shame, 
How cool it was, though, when Margaret came alongside of her new patient, her new friend, and was authentic and transparent and vulnerable and real. It changed not only the life of the patient across from her, it ultimately changed her own life, too. She continues to live her life in that way ever since. What a meaningful conversation that was for both of them. Brothers and sisters, family and friends, if you enjoy today's conversation and are looking for more practical tips and proven strategies in leading a healthier mental and emotional life, check out my mental health playlist. You'll hear from some remarkable guests, including my dear friend, Dr. John Deloney, Mel Robbins, Bruce Feiler, and more than 30 other experts. These life-giving conversations will help you and those that you love prioritize their mental and emotional lives. It will liberate you, in other words, to live inspired. My friends, I want to thank you, as I always do, for tuning in to this episode and remind you that regardless of where you work, worship, work out, or walk the dog around the block to tell those that you are near and close to, that you check out the Live Inspired podcast and that they should too. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keeley companies.com.